0: Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, coming to you from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Executive Editor of Recode. You may know me as someone who believes the internet should be free and open, except when my kids are using it. But in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode anywhere you listen to podcasts. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, TuneIn, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and more. Or just visit Recode.net slash podcasts for more. Today, we have a special bonus episode for you. Recode's senior policy and politics editor, Tony Rahm, spoke with FCC chairman Ajit Pai in Washington, D.C. earlier today. Last week, Pai formally announced his plans to roll back net neutrality rules that were passed under President Obama. And boy, is the internet pissed. Take it away, Tony. Thanks, Kara, and I'm here with FCC Chairman Ajit Pai. Chairman, thanks for
1: stopping by. Thanks for hanging out with us,
2: Tony. It is great to be with you.
1: <laughs> you know, we're going to see if I can go an entire podcast without making fun of your Kansas City Chiefs.
2: Oh, there are so many opportunities. I mean, Pat Mahomes losing to the Steelers last year in the playoffs. So I, re- I really appreciate your restraint. You, if you, yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah if I, I, mean, like to tell a Philadelphian that they have restraint. <laughs> is sort of a mistake on your part, uh, especially as we start an interview where we're going to talk about net neutrality. Philly uh,
2: fans are very soft-spoken. They don't really have a lot of opinions. So That, is, that uh, is fake news. That is that
1: is in fact that is in fact fake news. But <laughs> thanks for coming to talk about the real news, Chairman. Uh, and, and you've kept us pretty busy over the course of the last couple months. So I hear. Yes, yeah, so you hear. <laughs> uh, lots of things from net neutrality to media ownership, and we're going to talk about a lot of them. But I want to start by rewinding the clock a bit okay. to January when uh, President Trump was planning his administration. You know, you were one of the early folks to meet with uh, the president at Trump Tower, I believe. It was January 16th, if my memory serves me correctly. Good memory, yes. And then a few days later, we had the news that you were going to be taking over the agency. What did the president tell you in that meeting about what he expected from you and from your FCC?
2: Well, I was really appreciative of the meeting that we had. Uh, It was kind of surreal, I have to say. I'm as nervous anyway, you know, meeting (laughs) the president-elect of the United States. Uh, But I remember walking down this hallway in Trump Tower, and it got this unsettling feeling. And I thought, what is this? And then I realized I'm in the hallway where the apprentice contestants walk after they've been fired. Oh, so I thought no. well, the last thing I want is for, you know, me to mimic, uh, you know, what they had to go through. But we had a great conversation, uh he had my bio in front of him, uh, he knew uh, you know some of my work and uh, the the bottom line message uh, he had to me was like, look, we want you to uh, have free reign at the agency to do what you think is the right policy to get America investing again, get the uh, the sector moving again and so uh, he d- wasn't really specific but uh, uh, he just asked uh, you know how have you uh, uh, what are some of the priorities that you've got And so I talked about my plans for infrastructure investment uh, outlined some of the proposals that I uh, talked about last September uh, in uh, Cincinnati at a speech at the Brandery and so oh, that sounds great. Uh, you know, uh, good luck, and uh, look forward to working with you. And that was pretty much it.
1: Yeah. And so it was a you're hired instead of you're fired for your first meeting. With Thankfully, the he didn't
2: say it in those words, but uh, yes, it was uh, very gratifying at the end to know that uh, I had come away with uh, a favor- with a, making a favorable impression. Were you worried, though, uh, given the national political sentiment at the time,
1: that a lot of the politics that surrounded the election and have since surrounded the president in the first 100 days were going to affect you and the way that you approached issues at the FCC?
2: Nothing. Not Not so much for a couple of different reasons. Uh, First and foremost, uh, I stress to uh, the White House and they have agreed repeatedly that we are an independent agency. And uh, secondly, the issues that I've chosen to champion, closing the digital divide, for instance, uh, boosting rural broadband. I mean, these are not issues that know a party affiliation. Uh, Just this afternoon, for instance, I met with Senator Angus King, an independent from Maine. And outside of his office, there's a great poster of uh, JFK with a quote that says something to the effect of, uh, let us not search for the Republican answer. Let us not search for the Democratic answer. Let us search for the right answer. And notwithstanding the fact that things like net neutrality occupy a lot of the space in the public discourse, if you look behind the scenes, you'll see a ton of the stuff that we've done on a bipartisan basis to deliver digital opportunity to a lot of Americans. And even if it doesn't make the headlines, that's the stuff, the bread and butter work of the FCC that I'm really proud about. And I I think it's frankly apolitical.
1: Yeah. Although in the first days of, you know, your tenure as chairman, you were asked questions about the president's comments regarding reporters and whether they're enemies of the American people. So am I the enemy? Like, what's 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 the actual answer to all this?
2: The answer is that I love you, Tony. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I will never stop loving you. You will never stop loving me. But like, but like no, I but I have consistently said, look, the First Amendment is a core part of the Bill of Rights. Uh, the freedom of the press, the freedom of speech, the freedom of expression is what makes America distinctive, I think, among societies in the world today and over history. It's unusual to have a First Amendment, frankly, and that I think journalists around the country do a terrific job, an important job uh, covering issues of local interest, making sure that communities are involved. And. Look, so long as I have the privilege of being at the FCC, I'm going to continue speaking out in favor of the
1: First Amendment. Sure. Are th- is there a role for the FCC to play in fake news? I think a lot of people think
2: there's a role for the FCC to play. But what's your thought? Uh, we don't engage in content regulation. I mean, no, there's a big debate about that. And what I've consistently said is that's more of a political debate that lies outside of the FCC's bailiwick. We're focused, first and foremost, on making sure that we have a competitive marketplace that allows everybody in newspapers, broadcast TV, broadcast radio, and others uh, to continue to thrive in the digital Age and Uh, we'll let the uh, chips fall in terms of content wherever they may.
1: Sure. So in the early days, you had said that you wanted to take a quote, weed whacker to remove the rules
2: that are holding back investment. What did you mean by that? What I had in mind were some of the regulations that we've had on the books for a while that stand in the way of investment in networks. And just to give you a very simple example, just last, a couple of weeks ago at our most recent FCC meeting, we voted on a bipartisan basis uh, to get rid of a rule that artificially held back rural telecom carriers from building out their networks. Essentially, the message the FCC had given previously was you can accept federal subsidies to build out in these areas, but if you build out to some of the higher cost areas, then you essentially lose all of that funding. And we we just got rid of that because it's the last thing we want to do is prevent these carriers from building out. And that's the sort of antiquated rule that we wanted to get rid of. Uh, Our Part 32 accounting rules, exceedingly boring, I recognize, (laughs) but just the fact that companies have to maintain two different sets of books, literally one for their business and one for the FCC's purposes. And the FCC hadn't relied on any of that paperwork in years. And I asked our staff, what was the last time you looked at these reports? I said, well, pretty much never. And so we wanted to relieve some of those. Those are the kinds of regulations I had in mind because I want every dollar that a company has to be spent on building out networks, not on paperwork or... Your regulatory requirements that uh, don't aren't, aren't relevant in 2017, whatever relevance they might have had back in 1934, 1996, or you know, 2015, or
1: whatever. Sure, although there have been times where it's been much more controversial than that. Whether of we're course, talking yeah. about media ownership or net neutrality, right. it, it, It's felt to some folks Democrats of charged that you're just going through and systematically wiping out some of the work of your predecessor, FCC Chairman Tom Wheeler, who's been quite vocal, actually, sort of a break from Has the seen? past. Yeah, <laughs> I a, didn't little bit, that, no. a little bit. A little bit. There've been a couple <laughs> things he's said yeah. about it. In uh, And systematically taking down some of the work that he did, it it, it sort of feels like, you know, with the current normal, with Democrats fighting Republicans so often that— the, the Republican FCC is just looking to do undo all of the work the Democrats did.
2: I mean, I, that's an unfortunate view of things. I've consistently tried to reach common ground and even in the previous administration, some of these orders that were adopted on party line votes before those votes, I consistently reached out and said, you know, look, let's try to reach a common ground here because ultimately the agency's decisions stand the test of time, uh, both in terms of longevity and in terms of public support if they are bipartisan. And I'm, unfortunately, a lot of those uh, entreaties were buffed. And uh, so all we're simply trying to do in a lot of cases is go back to the status quo, trying to figure out the rules of the road that are forward-looking, market-based and hopefully bipartisan.
1: Sure. That being said, the New York Times in a series of editorials has been pretty critical of you. I think in
2: one they called you, quote, anti-consumer. Right. What's your reaction to that? Oh, it's absurd. I mean, I look, I understand that people are going to want to take a uh, yeah, hatch a job to to me, to my integrity, to my decisions. And that's obviously what the First Amendment's all about. But you know, I, I wish people would focus on some of the things that we've done on a bipartisan basis. The very first vote under my chairmanship was delivering $170 million of uh, funding, federal funding, to upstate New York to build out broadband. The first meeting that I had the privilege of setting the agenda for, we got unanimously over the finish line a $4.5 billion plan to build out 4G LTE. And a $2 billion plan to build out fixed broadband to parts of the country that don't have it. I mean, to me, if I were truly anti-consumer, I would simply say, you know what? The digital divide is fine with me. I, we don't Why expend any agency resources trying to close it? And so I think the proof is in the pudding, even if it doesn't uh, – you know, get the recognition that it deserves.
1: Yeah, I think the other New York Times editorial said that you were too close and too kind to the telecom industry. I mean, that's another one of the cases. You know, look,
2: people are well, free to say whatever they think, but the reality speaks otherwise.
1: So, let's dig into some of the issues, and obviously the big one that I think everybody wishes would go away, is net neutrality. Net neutrality. So, so you have a big speech last week at the museum, right. uh, an event hosted by FreedomWorks.
2: Uh, give us the very quick cliff notes version of this speech. A cliff notes version is the internet was free and open Open from the dawn of the internet age during the Clinton administration until 2015. Uh, in 2015, on a party-line vote, of course, the agency imposed Title II regulations on the internet service providers across this country, big and small. And uh, going forward, I announced that we would I proposed a notice of proposed rulemaking, in which we would, number one, uh, propose to remove the Title II classification of ISPs. Uh, number two, propose to remove the so-called internet conduct standard. And number three, ask for public input on how to co- preserve some of those core protections of an open internet that all of us favor. And uh, the reason I said we were doing this was because infrastructure investment has lagged, uh, competition with it has lagged. And especially in uh, parts of the country, like low-income rural and urban areas, uh, we see something called digital redlining, where ISPs will simply say, well, you know, look, there's not enough return on investment here, especially with this regulatory or overhang. We're going to be even less likely to build out to those areas. And so that's something I want to avoid if we can.
1: Sure. But the big takeaway for folks who might be a little confused by this debate is that you want to roll back the work the Obama administration did, particularly to subject Internet providers to utility-like regulation.
2: Exactly. That uh, we want to, you know, we don't want to impose a monopoly-style regulation developed from Ma Bell in the 1930s uh, to apply to every single company in the United States that is building out a broadband network. And uh, we would much rather have the free market uh, light-touch approach that the Clinton administration adopted. And uh, that uh, that commitment was enshrined in law uh, where they said the Internet should develop unfettered from federal and state regulation. And so uh, we're not saying the choice is either Title II or the Wild West. It's that light-touch regulation, the middle ground Uh, so to speak, that we're looking to uh, return to.
1: Sure. I was struck by the notice, though, the notice of proposed rulemaking. That's the official start of this debate uh, for folks who don't follow the ins and the outs of the FCC (laughs) as we do. Uh, It really seemed to pose the question as to whether the FCC needed rules on the books at all when it came to blocking websites, slowing down connections or charging companies for faster access or faster delivery of their services. Could we see a world in which the FCC didn't have any rules on net neutrality on its books uh, as we go through this notice that you've put forward?
2: Well, that's the entire purpose of a notice proposed rulemaking uh, to seek comment on what people think the rules of the road should be and what the legal framework for securing uh, those rules should be. And so I've consistently said that, look, I believe in a free and open internet and a part of that involves not blocking lawful content that consumers might want to access, being able to attach a device of your choice to the network, being able to get service information uh, about your plan from your internet service provider. I mean, those are core things that have been on the minds of people since 2004, I believe, since then-Chairman Powell announced what he considered to be the four internet freedoms. So the only question here is, what legal framework can we adopt? that secures those values? And how can we uh, make sure that we obviously preserve the free and open internet and the incentives to invest that benefit consumers? But it is possible that we don't have any
1: bright line net neutrality rules at the FCC at the end of this proceeding. That's a possibility here, right?
2: I think we'll look at that's the reason why we have the notes of proposed rulemaking to see what the rules should be. And I haven't made any determination. We're going to wait until the facts come into the record and, and make that decision. Sure. Some of the earlier reporting
1: had suggested that you potentially favored a voluntary program where internet providers would Say they would protect net neutrality. If they didn't, maybe another agency would go after them for violating their promise to consumers. Is that an option on the table?
2: This is part of the reason why I wanted to make this proposal public. Unlike my predecessor, unlike the FCC in history, where traditionally things would be proposed and you, the American people, would only be able to see it after we voted – I wanted the American people to see exactly what it was I was proposing so they can see for themselves uh, what's on the table. And so, yeah, the plan that we put made public is the plan. Sure. You know, four million
1: Americans put forward their voices last time we went through this. Lots of comments flooded the agency. I think it took down the agency's website at one point. Right. John Oliver got involved. It seems like the neutrality, the rules that are on the books are fairly popular.
2: Well, uh, we have to remember that not all four million were in support of the rules, some 1.6 to 1.7 million were opposed. But But secondly, uh, this is not a numerical threshold. What we have to do with the agency is uh, figure out the right regulatory framework to preserve a free and open internet and the incentive to invest in networks. And... I don't think it's a radical position to say that the Clinton administration got it right, that the Bush administration got it right, that the first six years of the Obama administration got it right. I mean, this is a bipartisan issue historically. And you just have to look at some of the comments of people over the year, from President Clinton to then-Senator Kerry and Senator Wyden in 1998, uh, then-Chairman Kennard in 1999. That Title II, in their view at least at the time, was not the right approach.
1: Sure. But passions are pretty high. So what do you say to those millions of Americans who believe, who truly believe and will probably write the agency again – uh, that the version of net neutrality that they support isn't the right version.
2: That Title 2 is not the same as an open internet. In fact, Title 2 takes us in the opposite direction by inhibiting competition, reducing investment in infrastructure. We had a free and open internet prior to 2015. As I said last week, we weren't living in some digital dystopia until the FCC delivered these Depression-era rules to save us. Uh, so I'm convinced that there are other paths to a free and open internet that are much more market-friendly, uh, much more consistent with, I think, what consumers want at the end of the day, which is better, faster, and cheaper internet access. And Title II simply doesn't get us there.
1: So what happens if there's another flood of comments? We have John Oliver going back on television saying words that I probably shouldn't say on Kara Swisher's podcast <laughs> about cable companies screwing It's not around. on broadcast
2: and, TV, so yeah, so... yeah, yeah, right.
1: Uh, let's let's not get me fired at month one on the job. Uh, but, but 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 what happens if we have millions and millions of Americans who file comments to the agency opposing the ideas that you've put
2: forward? Well, look, that's part of the process. We I wanted to make sure that we had a chance for the public to have its say. And then that's... Uh, the, after that's over, after that period is over, the agency takes stock of what's in the record. And under the law, uh, as enunciated by the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals here, we have to have what's called substantial evidence. We have to find in the record sufficient facts to justify what course of action we are going to take. And so there's no numerical threshold that the courts have applied. They don't say, okay, 51% say yes and 49% no, say no, then the decision is clear or any proportion greater than that. But they've said substantial evidence is the standard. And so that's the legal standard we're going to apply going forward. Do you think net neutrality advocates
1: are being disingenuous sometimes when they talk about this issue yes uh, why so
2: well I mean for example saying that oh, you will lose your internet access if these rules I mean that's simply absurd anyone who had internet access before these rules were applied in 2015 knows that that's not the case and there's you know the parade of horribles that are consistently trotted out have no resonance in fact prior to 2015. And I continue to believe that uh, they're overstated going forward. Sure. I think those public interest groups
1: probably would contend that the reason we haven't seen the parade of horribles, the really bad things they've pointed out, is
2: because there have been strong rules in the books. Well, only over the last two years. We had nothing—no rules on the books prior to 2015. And uh, you know, look, we had a free and open internet. We had an internet economy that became the envy of the world and that made some of these edge providers uh, globally known names. And that's a remarkable free market success story that I think we should celebrate as opposed to seeing as a... potential market failure that needs to be regulated uh, based on 1934 rules.
1: Sure. So I think there were about 800 startups that signed on to a letter that came out the day before you spoke saying that they needed net neutrality rules done the way the Obama administration did them to help them continue to operate so that they didn't have to worry about fast lanes and so forth. What do you say to
2: them? I say, look, we want the internet to continue to be this platform for innovation and investment. Uh, One of the things I've noticed when I travel around the world, which I've had the chance to do in this position, is that the rest of the world really ended. The fact that, as Mark Cuban has said, the best place to start a business is on the internet in the United States. And that's a remarkable uh, asset, I think, for us to have. And going forward, that's exactly what we want to preserve. A couple of years ago, Mark Andreessen, of course, the uh, founder of uh, mm-hmm. uh, the Netscape Browser and uh, who's now a very successful venture capitalist, he made the very perceptive point that you, don't, you can't have these pure net neutrality rules if you also want to have massive investment in networks because the return on the investment simply isn't going to be there. And as he saw it and as I see it, there's a happy middle ground here, which is light touch regulation. Don't impose these title II rules which inhibit infrastructure and ultimately are worse for startups because you know, more Americans won't have internet access and or we'll have slower and or more expensive internet access. Let's have light touch regulation that preserves both of these worlds, where innovators can innovate and network operators can build, and consumers are ultimately better off with that ha- virtuous cycle. Do you expect internet companies to file a court challenge when all said and done? I'm not sure who. I'm sure somebody is going to file. That's uh, the <laughs> nature of the beast, as you know, for a of these many years. But I'm very confident that uh, we are on sound legal footing. Uh, just earlier this week, for instance, the DC Circuit explicitly said that the agency had authority under the so-called Brand X decision in 2005 uh, to adopt a classification of internet service providers as an information service as opposed to uh, the Title II telecommunications service. Sure.
1: But we're going to get back into that debate over fast lanes again, right? That was the big thing when Chairman Wheeler was figuring this out. Folks felt that there were going to be fast and slow lanes. Right. in your mind, are there forms of these online fast lanes, which the correct term is paid prioritization is what we're talking
2: about. But the key phrase in your question was, in your mind. Sure. These don't exist. And, and prior to 2015, they didn't exist. So we're talking about something that's entirely hypothetical. So in a vacuum, one could conceive of any number of arrangements that are either pro-competitive or anti-competitive. And to me, as a recovering antitrust lawyer, that's a classic question of antitrust. I mean, you, you want to determine, of course, is there, you know, vertical restraint, as it's called in the, in the business, uh, that is Competing competition, or is otherwise harming consumer welfare. That's something the antitrust authorities, the Justice Department, antitrust Division, the Federal Trade Commission, for instance, are squarely empowered to police. And so, uh, to me, if there are you know, two different ways to go, it could be pro competitive or anti competitive. Then you know, preemptively banning something uh, doesn't necessarily, in the absence of demonstrable uh, market failure or harm it seems to be a, a pretty a bit of an overreach.
1: So 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 just to be clear for folks who again maybe don't know the ins and outs of this debate that well right you don't want to put into necessarily put into place restrictions from the get-go that say, you know, there can't be fast lanes. You would rather see such fast lanes come into existence and then evaluate them on the merits?
2: Well, so, okay, here's the basic approach. Uh, when you think about regulation, and I'm, this is an answer to your question, I'm not just filibustering, <laughs> I promise, but if I don't answer it, just come back to me. Gladly. Um, <laughs> a, a regulator has two choices. You can regulate before the fact, uh, ex ante as it's mm-hmm. called, or you can regulate after the fact, ex post. Now, ex ante regulation traditionally is uh, most appropriate when you see that there's market failure. When you see it in marketplace is just so fundamentally broken, you have so much evidence in the record of bad behavior or like blocking websites or whatever, that there's no uh, optimal solution other than preemptive regulation of everybody. Now here, if we're talking about a hypothetical harm, something that hasn't happened yet, it seems to me that ex post regulation after the fact is appropriate because number one, We don't know if these will ever exist, but number two, to the extent that they do exist, if some companies try to pursue these arrangements, then on a case by case basis, you can determine based on real facts, actual evidence that you can see and and evaluate and test uh, whether or not something is competitive or not. And so given the cost that economists and others have identified with sweeping preemptive regulations in this space, it seems to me the lighter touch approach would be. Take a look after the fact. If people are behaving great, fine, no problem at all. If people, if there are complaints about any competitive conduct, then we take a look at that and evaluate whether it's any competitive. And so, I guess that's the answer to the question I would offer. So
1: it could be. So there could be a world in which the FCC does not have rules on paid prioritization or blocking or throttling on its books. It leaves it to other laws, and after the fact, goes after companies that uh, that misbehave.
2: Well, that's part of the, it could be, but that's one of the things we're exploring in the notes of proposed rulemaking is to figure out what the rules of the road should be. It
1: it, it could be. How much of this starts with the fact that consumers are generally distrustful of telecom companies, of cable companies, of internet providers? That seems to be really what's at root here.
2: Oh, I absolutely get that. I mean, look, internet service providers send you a bill every month and they might not uh, give you the service that you uh, deserve. They might not be fast enough. It might not be cheap enough, not be uh, optimal for you. And I, I completely get that. But the solution to me is not to impose Title II regulation. It's for the regulators, at least, to set up a regulatory framework that promotes competition, that promotes more infrastructure investment. And that's consistently the position I've taken is that Title II regulations actually squeeze the smaller competitors who want to enter in the space and expand their networks. I and mean, just last week, we heard from 22 small ISPs, companies that nobody has ever heard of, in towns no one, very few people will ever visit. And what they told us is, look, we are being inhibited. Uh, Title II hangs like a black cloud, as they put it, over our businesses. It keeps us from getting financing. It inhibits our willingness to build out our networks. And we simply are not able to provide more people with digital opportunity as a result of that. And the simple point I'm making is, whether you're a cable company or a wireless ISP or anybody else, if, you, uh, if, if you're if you looking to build out your networks, then the last thing we want is to inhibit that with Title II regulations that are meant to regulate monopolists. I mean, Ma Bell was the monopoly in 1934 that Title II was designed for. I mean, I'm telling Main Street Broadband in Cannon Falls, Minnesota, Wave Wireless in my hometown of Parsons, Kansas. I mean, these are not corporate Goliaths that are looking to screw over the consumers. These are the small companies we need to provide a competitive alternative to the big guys.
1: Yeah. Speaking of competition, though, the other half of this trust picture is the size of these companies. It really feels at the moment that there's great opposition to bigness right now. Very, very big companies that are getting bigger. How do you square that away with some of the work that you've done to essentially make it easier for companies to gobble each other up.
2: Just look at the proposals that are on the table. As I said, you know, I know it's not sexy. I know that nobody is ever going to read a story about about
1: it, but (laughs) please don't um, say that to my bosses. I don't think (laughs) think that's not good for
2: me. It's so important to me because, look, the the proposals we got across the finish line just two weeks ago on a bipartisan basis. I mean, wireline infrastructure. Can you think of anything more calculated to make your eyes glaze over than the phrase wireline infrastructure? (laughs) But uh, you're getting cheaper and faster access to polls if you're a competitor, making it easier for you to string your competitive fiber in the in the conduit that goes under the ground, uh, making it, it streamlined so you don't have to jump through all of these state and local hoops just to be able to deploy a network. I mean, those are things that disproportionately benefit these small companies. You know, Just a month ago, I was in Detroit, met with a small competitive ISP named Rocket Fiber. And they are trying to provide an alternative to the big cable and telecom incumbents. And what they've told me is Look, without utility pole access, uh, without some of the rights of way, without being able to get into the ground and string our conduit, we just don't have a business case, period. It's prohibitively expensive. And so what we did at the FCC last month or, or earlier this month was to take a look at that and tee up a, different, a bunch of different ideas that don't redound to the benefit of big companies necessarily. It's more the rocket fibers, the tiny companies that need access. And our goal is to lower the cost element for those small companies so that they have the confidence and the ability to deploy in places like Detroit or Parsons or wherever it might be.
1: Sure, but consumers still look at this and they see companies getting bigger and then the companies are out on their earnings calls talking about how they think they can continue to get bigger under this administration.
2: All I can tell you is what I've said uh, consistently going back to even when I was a nominee before the Senate Commerce Committee in November uh, November 30th of 2011, which is that I will evaluate every single transaction that's in front of me based on the facts in the record. I'm not going to simply allow more consolidation or that kind of thing just because of you know, some ideology. It's a very fact-based approach. And I have a long history of doing this, going back to my time as a junior lawyer at the Justice Department in the antitrust division, where I evaluated mergers like this. You know, I worked on the team that ended up blocking the merger of World Commons Sprint, for example. And we took a careful look at the facts and made the appropriate judgment. That's exactly the type of framework I will apply at the FCC. Sure. Now, your predecessor was rather
1: public. Uh, in his views that he didn't think we should go from four major wireless carriers down to three.
2: What are your thoughts about that? Look, I don't take a pre-existing view as to what the optimal market structure is. I don't think any regulator who embraces regulatory humility and intellectual honesty about economics can say whether three or four or five is the optimal number. What I do want to see is a competitive wireless marketplace. And so we'll see what happens if a transaction is presented before us. I want to see some of the documents. Uh, Companies traditionally have to file what are called 4C documents uh, with the Justice Department. And that uh, sort of suggests what the efficiencies would be from the transaction what some of the competitive harms could be that's the kind of evidence we want to see before making a judgment as to what the uh, number of competitors on a national basis should be. So you're
1: not going to foreclose on hypothetically Sprint and T-Mobile could becoming one company. You're not automatically opposed
2: to that. I I never pronounce judgment on any transaction big or small without looking at the facts. Uh, <laughs> as President Obama once said, I tr- try to think about these things before I say something about them. <laughs> so we are at the
1: point though that we lo- there were re-examining the country's media ownership rules. That's the that's the big thing uh, that you sort of teed up while you were speaking uh, at NAB the right. the broadcaster Show in Vegas just a few weeks ago.
2: Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, to me, it seems pretty simple that uh, some of these regulations that were imposed as early as 1975 have become yellowed with age. And I think that, uh, as I said at NAB a couple of weeks ago. If you were to tell somebody, well, the FCC has these rules with respect to uh, the ownership of uh, companies that generate news, but it excludes this thing called the internet. And oh, the internet doesn't matter anymore. I mean, that's just an absurd proposition in 2017. As newspapers are declining and going out of business altogether. Broadcast TV and radio are having an even tougher time of it, especially in smaller markets where the revenue streams just aren't there. And so it seems to me that we should allow you know, some of these relaxed, some of these uh, regulations to be relaxed in recognition of the fact that the market. Places changed. This is not 1975 anymore. Sure, but one of the what one, one of the
1: regulations I think you're looking to relax is the ownership cap. That's that 39 percent limit on you know, how much a broadcaster uh, is is able to reach within the country. Is that is that is that really what's on the plate here?
2: Well, one of the things we uh, pointed out when we uh, repealed the so-called UHF discount decision last uh, last month, I believe it was, uh, was simply to say, look, you can't do one without the other. You can't get rid of the UHF discount. And just to be the, clear
1: with folks, that was a, that was a program in place. There, I, I guess, a rule in place that uh, right. changed the way you calculated your foot print.
2: Exactly. And so the point, simple point we made was that, legally speaking, uh, you can't remove that discount without also examining the national ownership cap. The two of them go together because the UHF discount feeds into how that national ownership cap is calculated. And so all I simply said was let's return to the status quo, take a fresh look at the issue and try to figure out what the optimal uh, structure is for this uh, going forward. But
1: there the industry does have potentially the ability to get bigger. We could end up in a place where the ownership cap is much higher than it is now in companies, uh, you know, whether it's Fox and Tribune and Sinclair or, or some other combination thereof uh, are able to do
2: more and buy more of each other. Well, two points. I mean, they can always present a transaction for us for consideration and we'll make the appropriate judgment. But number two, uh, the national ownership cap hasn't stood in the way of a lot of these transactions in the past. And so, you know, transactions are always going to come and go depending on what the regulatory framework is. We're simply convinced that we have to have a – Uh, A set of rules that reflect the marketplace of 2017, not the marketplace of yesteryear. Sure. Are you worried
1: about interference from the Trump administration when it comes to some of these deals? I mean, you guys aren't looking at the AT&T Time Warner merger. That's in the hands of the Justice Department. But the president has been incredibly outspoken
2: on that. He's very close to the likes of Rupert Murdoch. Are you worried about independence here? I'm certainly not. I've never gotten any hint from him or from anybody else that they wanted me to make a certain decision. And to the contrary, the consistent message they've given me, starting on the day I got the phone call on January 23rd when I was designated as chairman, was we have now made the decision that you are the appropriate person to lead this agency. Lead this agency, do what you think is right and we will back you up. We are not going to sit here and interfere with you or micromanage you in any way whatsoever. Sure.
1: So so then I guess that gets us back to the question of bigness and what consumers think about this. It does seem to be like there's great opposition to mergers like AT&T and Time Warner. Some of the things have been discussed with respect to Sinclair. It it just seems like there's an outpouring of opposition to this stuff, while at the same time, it looks like the government's making it easier for these sorts of combinations to happen.
2: Well, two different points. I mean, one, uh, we haven't been presented with any transaction yet. So, uh, But secondly, the prior administration, uh, okay, paid something like $250 billion worth of uh, transactions and consolidation. So as I pointed out recently, it's sort of Funny to hear this criticism now when just over the last couple of years, it's okayed the number of transactions that have raised consumers ire. Sure. And so, you know, what happens from here for the FCC?
1: We obviously have media ownership on the plate. Right. We have net neutrality, which might outlast me on this earth uh, in terms of a, <laughs> in terms of the debate that still has to be solved. You know, what are the next six months for the FCC look like?
2: Uh, well, it's a really forward-looking agenda. I want to follow through on some of our proposals on infrastructure. I've been working with members of Congress on what I've called gigabit opportunity zones to uh, essentially allow tax incentives Uh, to go to companies that want to build out in low-income rural and urban areas. And I've had conversations with members of uh, minority communities, uh, National Urban League and others, to try to figure out if there's a way to promote more digital opportunity and entrepreneurship in areas that historically have been on the wrong side of the digital divide. I'm going to keep focusing on that issue because I think it's right for America uh, and – Yeah, hopefully we'll be able to. uh, These efforts will bear some bipartisan fruit in the time to come.
1: Yeah, that being said, does it seem though that tech and telecom issues are becoming more partisan? Everybody give every to this line that like things are fine, but
2: Uh, yeah. Look, it's it's unfortunate. I think uh, Washington has become more politically polarized, and tech policy, along with it, has it's. It's really unfortunate. I still remember when the first hearings I went to on Capitol Hill was about a bill called Tozan Dingle, and it was a Republican (laughs) chairman and Democratic ranking member joining ranks to introduce a bill. I don't even remember what the bill was about anymore, to be honest with you. But I mean, by modern standards, it is remarkable that you would see a chairman and ranking member agreeing on anything as uh, far-reaching as that. And so, you know, my hope is that we can try to return to that model. I try to meet with as many members of Capitol Hill on both sides as I can. You were there today. I was just over there today and met with uh, House and Senate members, Republicans and Democrats. And uh, as I said, you know, meeting with Senator King, uh, the one thing I told him, which resonated with him, was that. Look, rural broadband is not a Republican issue. It's not a Democratic issue. It's an American issue. And I truly believe that in my heart. And so look, the things that we tee up for the public's consideration, some of them might have more of a political tinge to it. But by and large, the bread and butter work of the FCC, at least as far as I see it, is on delivering digital opportunity. And that is something that I don't see as a partisan issue in the least. Sure. And the agency is down two commissioners. Have you spoken with the president about filling those slots? I've not yet, no. But I hope uh, whoever those uh, new colleagues will be, that they come on board and uh, share our vision of being an active, energetic agency that's uh, focused on the consumer.
1: Your former colleague, Jessica Rosenworcel, a Democrat, uh, was on the commission. Yeah. Uh, president Obama put her up at the very end of his term, but she didn't get confirmed. Didn't get right. that far. Do you think she should come back?
2: It's That's up to the White House to decide in consultation with members of the Senate. She was a terrific colleague. I really enjoyed working with her, with her and uh, she and I came through uh, on literally yep. on the same day, as you remember, in May of 2012. And I've really enjoyed her insights. And even when we're on opposite sides of an issue, I can always have an intellectually honest uh, d- discussion with her. And that's one of the great things, I think, about Washington. Sure. Well, we went through an entire podcast without me
1: giving you any sort of trouble on football. happens?
2: I'm impressed. I'm going to say, as an Eagles fan, I you know, was expecting something more. You know, <laughs> we you know, bestowed Andy Reid upon you. <laughs> but nothing at all. I, I really admire your rest- restraint and wish you well with Al and some of the new people on board. It's going to be an exciting (laughs) season for the Eagles. Yeah,
1: yeah. we're basically a federal entitlement program for uh, dying athletes. Uh, (laughs) And on that note, Chairman, thanks so much for joining us. I'm going to toss it back to Kara, who's going to tell you about uh, some more podcasts you can listen to uh, for Recode.
2: Thanks again for having me.
0: Yeah. Thanks again to FCC Chairman Ajit Pai for coming on the podcast and to Recode Senior Policy and Politics Editor Tony Rahm for conducting the interview. You can find all of Tony's outstanding coverage at Recode.net. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes, including some really fantastic interviews we've done with Congressman Ro Khanna, CrowdPack CEO Steve Hilton, and Representative Nancy Pelosi, just to name a few. You can find all those episodes and more wherever you found this one, or on our website, recode.net slash podcasts. Now that you're done with this, check out one of our other shows. On Recode Media with Peter Kafka, you'll hear no BS interviews with some of the smartest people in media and entertainment. I host Two Embarrassed to Ask along with Lauren Good of The Verge, where we answer all of your questions about consumer tech. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from all of Recode's live events, including the Code Conference. Thanks for listening to this bonus episode of Recode Decode. Thanks also to Digital Media, the company that distributes this show, including Beth O'Connell and our editor, Chris Basil. And thank you to our producer, Eric Johnson. This has been another episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here Monday with another great guest. Tune in then.